you have your Bibles, uh, Colossians is Colossians chapter three is where we're going to be. Colossians chapter three, and in just a minute, I'm going to begin reading from verse twelve, just to verse fourteen. Okay, good. Well, let's hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect, mature, another translation, perfect unity. Amen. Let's bow together and pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we turn to you and turn to your word, the Bible, we pray that you would look with compassion on this world that lies under the control of the evil one. We pray that you would cast him out and let those who live, live uh, with Christ. And those that live without Christ, we pray for their conversion. We pray, Father, that they would be enlisted in your service. We pray, Psalm 2, give to your son the nations as his inheritance. Awaken the dead hearts of men and women, adding to your church globally and locally everyone that you save. We also pray, Father, that you would be our teacher, for we believe, God, and we say this often, that when your word is truly preached, then, then your voice is really heard. And we see the evidence of it as it, it pricks us and uncovers us and cuts us to the quick and tells us who we really are and sets us in a direction of, that we would never think of or go to ourselves. And so as we study our Bibles this morning, remind us this is the word of God. What it says we are, we are, and what it says we have, we have, and what it says we ought to do, we we can do. And so, uh, as we're here this morning, we're not here to listen to the ramblings of a mere man. However, Father, we are here to listen to you. And so, for that to take place, we remain absolutely dependent on you for everything now. And we ask this in the name of the one who suffered and died in our place for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, There was a young man, many of you probably know, named John Wesley. By all accounts, he was a brilliant man. He was an intellectual. He was moral. He was religious. He was extremely disciplined, and he was zealous. And about 275 years ago, he leaves his high post at the University of Oxford. He leaves behind a wonderful job, crosses the Atlantic with all the hazards that were part and parcel of a trip like that in a time like his to evangelize uh, the inhabitants, the first inhabitants of pre-America Savannah, Georgia. But in all that work, there was one enormous problem. Even though he was one of the the founding members of Oxford's Holy Club, and I I want you to listen to it. This comes from uh, Wesley's own account. This is the Holy Club, a club that met at first every Sunday night. Then, then later on, two evenings every week. 
And then later on, we met every evening from 6 to 9. They began their meeting with prayer, studied the Greek Testament and the classics, reviewed the work of the past day, talked over the plans for the morrow, closed with a frugal supper. They received the Lord's Supper weekly, fasted twice a week, and instituted a system of a searching system of self-examination, aiming at all things to do the will of God and be zealous of good works. Now, despite all of that, okay, by his own account, he was a miserable man, and by his own account, he was a miserable failure, and he tried to preach to the inhabitants, but by his own admission, he felt he needed to be converted himself, and he was right, and so he writes, this is again his journal, in all my zeal, in this refined way of trusting in my own works and trusting in my own righteousness, okay, and then he puts in... in, in um, commas, so zealously indoctrinated by the mystic writers. In other words, what he was saying was, I was reading popular Christianity, and this is what they were teaching me. And he says, he goes on, he says, I dragged on heavily, finding no comfort or help. All the time I was at Savannah, I was thus beating the air. So he comes back to England in the exact same condition, and he would have surely died that way, but for one thing. By the mercy of God, May 24th, 1738, Wesley went to a little meeting, if you like. He went to a home group. He he enters the home group dejected, cast down, feeling useless. He, again, by his own words, doubting everything. There, a man in the meeting was, was simply reading out loud the introduction of Luther's commentary to the Epistle of Romans, which I read this week. And so as the mere man begins to read, Wesley tells us, Wesley tells us what happens. As I was listening, suddenly my heart was strangely warmed. My heart began to burn within me. I knew that my sins, even my sin, were forgiven. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had actually taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had, in a more extraordinary manner, despitefully used me and persecuted me, I then testified openly to all there what I now first felt in my heart. Now, I want you to understand that there you have at first a very moral man who is dead, dead to the things of Christ, dead to the righteousness of Christ, but, but he was alive with, with uh, morality, but dead. Moral, a good man, but dead. Religious, going through the routines and big with them. I mean, if you just set that little quote that we read at first, many parents would be proud of him. Every night you're doing something for Jesus. Wow. So he was religiously doing the routines big with them, but he was dead. Moral, but not trusting Christ alone for his standing with God all day, every day. Zealous, but a zeal without knowledge. But again, thanks be to God that the captain of the gospel captures Wesley And Wesley begins to discover the first principles of the gospel, that God will not and God cannot save us by our own righteousness, but only through the righteousness of someone else. So as John Owen said in the century before Wesley, we can wake up every morning as a Christian with the deeply encouraging realization that we are not accepted by God on the basis of our personal performance, but only on the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And so you would think, okay, well, that's just going to keep people away from Christ and the church. I mean, if that's it, if that's all we have to do, then okay, I'll just stay at home. But listen carefully, the, the gospel is not an invitation to copy Jesus Christ. The, the gospel is an invitation to be changed by Jesus Christ. And so Christian history records for us that, that Wesley was a mighty force for Jesus Christ. And, and, and he was a white, hot, flaming evangelist for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he, he, he sold out his whole life for Jesus Christ. And, and that is, in principle, the, the byproducts of God's grace in Jesus. So that God was shaping a man, dragging him through the dry, dusty trail of his own self-righteousness that was killing him in order that he would come to the sensible conclusion that God's love for us is never on the basis of our duty. That God saves by substitution. The, the righteousness God requires is a righteousness that God has achieved. It, it's revealed in the gospel and it's bestowed on all those who believe. And believers, when they become Christians because of their vital union in Christ, we've been talking about this now going on five weeks, because of this vital union with Christ, they are transformed by Christ. And that is an undeniable part of conversion, the grace of conversion. Which is why we said last time we were together, we said that the Apostle Paul in Colossae was building a church by precept and by practice, that he was shaping a church, is a better word, by God's grace in Jesus. Shaping a church by God's grace in Jesus. While while the false teachers in Colossae were trying to shape a church by saying things like, there's so much more to the Christian life, and, and then salvation in Jesus' name. And we can help you find up, find this. Your true church group is fine, but there's so much more out there. And there's so much more to the Christian life. And we have a number of spiritual holy clubs. If you would, you can sign up online anytime you want and join the group. It'll be fantastic. And then you can find your place, your real place in the world, because, you know, everything here kind of holds you back. So there's realms out there, spiritual realms that you've never touched on and we can help you find them and so you can be full and free and feel fantastic all the time. But Paul says, no, absolutely not. For to be a church shaped by God's grace in Jesus is is to be a church that has to rest on the finished work of Christ, that has to rely on the promises of Christ and build itself up in its union with Christ, right? So again, resting in the finished work of Christ. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that enough? Yes, that is enough. That is why you are right with God. Yes, it is. It's not your ego. No, it's not my eager ego. But, but you know, you're naturally confident person. You are a naturally confident person. No, it's not that. You are naturally self-assured. No, it's not that. I have incredible drive. No, it's not that. I am of a very low estate. No, it's not that. The reason that we no longer stand condemned and, and even know and we feel sin's husk still clinging to us is because Jesus Christ died on a cruel cross some 2,000 years ago and rose again. So we're resting in the finished work of Christ and we're relying on the promises of Christ, right? Remember the promises? Jesus said, you're free, you're full, you're fully forgiven, There's no hoops to jump through. There's nothing you can do to be made more Christian. How how does that happen? How do you become even more Christian? Right now, Christian, you're in the highest place. You're seated at the highest throne there is next to Jesus Christ, who's next to his Father and our Father too. So we rest in the finished work of Christ. We rely on the promises of Christ. And a church that is being shaped by God's grace is building itself up in its union 
with Christ, right? Which is why as we look at verse 12, if your Bible's open there, when you look at verse 12 of Colossians 3, we found out last time the, the, question, the answer to the question, who are we? Well, God says we are chosen, God says we are holy, and God says we are dearly loved, and nothing will ever change that. Now, I want you to think with me, because here we can see Paul is giving the Colossian Christians just, just theology. I mean, that's what he's doing, just thick theology. You are chosen. That's the doctrine of election and predestination. You are holy, the dual doctrines of justification and sanctification. You are dearly loved, the doctrine of adoption and redemption and substitution, right? So he doesn't give them a couch to lay on. He gives them a cross to look at. That's doctrine, heavy, thick doctrine. And every one of those things relies on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for their veracity, for their reliability, for their legitimacy, and for their permanency so that everything hinges on Christ all the time so that we don't look at ourselves so much. What a horrible thing. <laughs> I'm laughing because this week I looked in the mirror at myself and I said, just, uh, I said, I am so sick of you. And then I left real quick and went back and apologized. But you get the point. The temptation is to always look at ourselves. The work of the Holy Spirit is to always get us looking at Jesus Christ. Which is why, Christian, if you are persistently despondent in despair or depressed or no longer in the battle of indwelling, indwelling sin or just haunted by your past, the, the best question that needs to be asked may not be, tell me what happened to you when you were 11. The best question that mice must be asked is, do you know what happened before there was time, before there was space, before there was anything that God was choosing you before the foundation of the world? And do you know what happened for you at Calvary that God's son put himself forward as a propitiation at the Father's request? This is, this is the volitional act of Jesus Christ for our sin at Calvary so that people might be declared holy and people might be declared whole and complete and people might become, become holy. The hand, says Spurgeon, that multiplied the loaves that saved sinking Peter, the hands that uphold afflicted saints that crown believers, that same hand will touch every seeking sinner and in a moment make them clean. And do you know, Christian, that you are dearly loved? Because how could we ever define God's love how can we ever define our standing with God as dearly loved children based on just the trend of circumstances or based on the size of our accounts or our house or our car or the, the, the bigness of our health or the bigness of our brain or the greatness of our earthly life? How, would, how could you measure that by that? And so you might be saying, yeah, but you don't understand my pain and you don't understand my past. They are, they are monumentally different than yours. And so maybe it is the unspeakable pain of abuse, physical or others. But we need to think about Jesus here, right? Jesus became the sacrifice for such horrible sins as those. He tasted it. He felt it. It was put on him. The one who knew no sin became sin, became abuse, wrong abuse, which makes the shame and humiliation of, of those things more intense and more distasteful because Jesus knew no sin. That's why Jesus can help you as the shepherd. On the cross, he felt the shame and humiliation of, in, in every fiber of his being, if you would, but remain absolutely faithful to God. Which is why Paul says, because of who you are, verse 12a, 
then be what you are and clothe yourself with verse 12b. Clothe yourself with compassion, you can, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are your clothes. And if you're wearing them, verse 12b, then verse 13 becomes very possible, right? Which is our first point, mutual forbearance. So we are treated with hatred. We are treated with persecution, subject to slander, rumor. What do we do? Verse 13, bear with each other and forgive what he, whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So, so first, then mutual forbearance. Bear with each other. It means, in essence, hold yourself back from one another or hold up the offense and then put it on you. It means that we are to resist the temptation to break loose and let others have it because they did it, whatever it is. And if we're honest, many times we leave behind Christian graces by our own actions and by our own words, we ourselves become unbearable. Which is why Paul said, bear with each other, because each of us have something that others need to bear. Now, if you're thinking with me, that's terrific honesty, isn't it? Terrific honesty. We are not all that. And he's not saying, you know, let yourself go, tell others, deal with me. That's selfishness. He is saying, hold yourself back. So the wife says to her husband, dear, you're just unbearable today. But I'm going to do Colossians 3.13 and bear with you. And so the husband says to the wife, you're supposed to bear with me, but you're not supposed to tell me that I'm unbearable. And she says, well, where did you get that from? And he says, well, why don't you look at your Bibles, Colossians 2, 12b, okay? Then they have to spend the rest of their day together like that. I want you to listen to your Bible, 1 Corinthians 4, 12. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. Same word translated bear in Colossians 3, 13. Therefore, bearing with others is is meekness and long-suffering in action. This is, if you like, biting our tongue for others because God knows they will and they have bitten their tongue for us. So sometimes we, we might be far too anxious to let our brothers and sisters really have it in the name of truth, sometimes real, sometimes imagined. But Paul says we are to look favorably on people. We give them the benefit of the doubt. And, and what we need to do is enter into their life think them through and what life is for them. And when we think these things through as we move towards them, we have more understanding and we can help now practically and we can give and help in bearing with them. Because I think the line that I would go down is this. Our forbearance for them flows out of Christ's forbearance with us. Isn't that fair? Our forbearance for others flows out of Christ's forbearance with us. That's mutual forbearance. Second point, mutual forgiveness. When we learn to bear with one another, the second part of that verse calls us to, I think, a further and probably more penetrating contact. You can see it there, verse 13b, forgive whatever, whatever grievances you may have against one another. And so there's an implicit assumption again that there'll there'll be things amongst God's dearly loved children where forgiveness will need to be exercised. And so I want to say to you again, this is a great liberation. Instead of trying to pretend that there's nothing needed to forgive in us, instead of trying to pretend that we have it all together and we can keep it all together, Paul says, frankly, fat chance. 
you and I will need to extend forgiveness to God's people and you and I will need to be forgiven and give forgiveness by God's people. And so the Puritans would say this, when, when I will not forgive my brother or sister in Christ, this is what happens. I have exaggerated their wrongdoing against me and I have minimized my wrongdoing against God. Again, I have exaggerated their wrongdoing against me and I have minimized my wrongdoing against God. Forgiveness is very difficult. How many times ought I forgive, says Peter to his master? And then Jesus tells a story, right? The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back the 10,000 bags of gold I owe you. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused and said he went off. He went off and he had the man thrown into prison. Justice. Until you pay back the debt. Justice. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Should you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Emphasis, impossible task. He's going to be there forever which is why 35 is daunting. Verse 35 is daunting. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. And so the ground of the motivation for the Christian, the ground of this kind of forgiveness is of the highest order. Again, look at your Bible. You forgive, end of verse 13, as the Lord forgave you. So whenever I say that, I ask some questions. Question number one. Is God's forgiveness to me because I have earned it? Answer, no. Question two, is God's forgiveness towards me glad and generous and final? Answer, yes. And then I have the big question. Did God's forgiveness towards me involve that multidimensional plan of God from all eternity that involved the whole action of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that spanned across thousands of years at the securing of a line of people, that's our Old Testament, so that a Davidic king could be born out of a virgin's womb and endure temptation that no human will ever know, then being sent to a cross as an innocent man at the hands of cruel men who lied about him so that the full depth and width and wretchedness of sin be placed on him so that as Christ hangs on the cross at the height of his pain, at the very moment when crowds are telling and taunting him, He's sinking to his death. He tells his father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Is that how our Lord forgave us? Yes. Because that is the only way forgiveness is even made possible. Then Paul says, forgive by that wonderful principle as the Lord forgave you. How how much action secured for us our forgiveness before there was time and space or anything, God was working that out. 
Loved ones, free yourself if you need to this morning. Free yourself from the bondage of unforgiveness. Just do it now. Be who you are. You know what it is. You rehearse the sin over and over in your mind, and you always come out right. I understand that. You might be right, but Jesus offers you this wonderful principle. Forgive. Right now. Forgive. You can if you're a Christian. C.S. Lewis. To be a Christian is to forgive the indefensible of others because God has forgiven the indefensible in you. And so I think if we walk down this line, it starts with being honest with our own sin. We read our Bibles let the mirror of God's word tell on us, not on others, but tells on us so that if we see ourselves in the mirror, we say that the biggest problem here is my sin. It's no one else's sin. It's my sin. And then this makes us honest about our sin. So Bonhoeffer says, the cross is God's truth about us, and it's the only power that can make us truthful. When we know the cross, we no longer are afraid of the truth. Isn't that true? When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth. And we can say to Christ, Lord Jesus, you died to forgive me of this sin, and, and this, is, this is why you had to die. I am the reason why you had to die. Now, I want to fight this sin, the sin of unforgiveness, namely, so I can forgive others. Loved ones, God knows the truth about us, and it is much worse than you and I and others can imagine. And yet he still forgives. One of my favorite hymns in thinking about forgiveness has the line, I praise you for your faithfulness, O Lord, and for your Father's love that never fails. Who am I, the King of love my shepherd is? Who am I that you should call me friend? And then the third verse For though you know all my ways. And that is the part of the song that hurts me the most. Though you know all my ways, yet your love for me endures. And that is the part of the song that helps me the most. And when I think on all these things, and and that is the part of the song that makes me sit down. When I think about all these things, these graces, oh, I love you more and more. And that is the part of the song that sets my heart to worship. Mutual forbearance, mutual forgiveness, and finally mutual love. Verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. All the things of verse 12b and verse 13, they need a wrapping, right? The picture that Paul is giving us is in the ancient world, clothes fit much looser and they... (laughs) than now, and they need, need help to stay on. So the, the ancient person had a belt or a girdle or a sash or something that they could tie themselves up so their clothes would not fall off. And so all the clothes of verse 12 and 13, the compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, those are the spiritual clothes, and they need a binder to keep them all together. And that, that binder, that belt is love. That's verse 14. Over all these virtues, put on love. So right off the bat, we're not perfected in isolation, are we? But we are perfected in community. That's why we need the church. Love is the word, agape love. Again, that's another word that the Apostle Paul essentially had to make up. There was no word in the Greek language that that gave that meaning. There are other words for love, but not that kind of word. This is divine love. This is love that we can't uh, uh, work out of ourselves. This does not come by naturally to us. This is supernatural love given to us in our union with Christ. So agape love is heart-dripping love, isn't it? It's mind 
bending. It is life altering. It is thoughtful. It is insightful. Agape love absorbs so much because it is self-giving. So agape love slows you down. You can't say yes to yourself and everything all the time because there are better things that are to be done in the name of God's love because love is a verb. Agape love is replete with action and action takes time and time is limited. We know that. But agape love is given to Christ, to his church, to his people, to the world for the glory of Jesus Christ. We have, I think, I think you would agree, there's always this increasing tendency in our age to live for pleasure, superficial enjoyment. They compete with agape love, but they're not better than agape love. So if you had to put this in a line, you'd say it like this, treat others the same way Christ treats you. Makes me smile because I know how Christ treats me. Treat others the same way Christ treats you. You. 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So because disunity in a body can be such a chore, because it can be so grievous to God, let's make sure we are covering each other constantly with agape love. So that no matter What you may do to me, or no matter what I do to you, or no matter what we do to one another, all of which are done before the eyes of God, we can still be sure that we can never do anything that would stop this Christian family from loving each other. Because when we say, I love you, just think about that. The last time you've told somebody in a Christian context, I love you, it's okay to say. When we say, I love you to the Christian, and when we mean it, It's like saying it to Jesus Christ because that person in Christ is in Christ, united to Christ. Richard Baxter, think of heaven and what a thing a saint will be in glory when they shall shine as stars and be more than angels and then you will quickly see cause to love them. 1 Timothy 5, treat older men as if they were your father. Love. Treat younger men as brothers. Love. Older women as mothers. Love. Younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Love. I don't know if you do this, but we we used to do this when the kids were smaller on a cold night. And there were cold nights in Texas and Tennessee on occasion. But on those cold nights, you'd get the big blanket, right? And everybody would get on the couch. And the two biggest bottoms were on the end, and we'd tuck the the blanket in our bottoms, and we'd just sit there and just watch a movie, eat popcorn, do something, snuggle, right? Blanket is love. It's Christian love. It's really good. When it's right, it's tremendous. There's nothing better. Sometimes I tell myself this. I won't say this in the second service, I promise, okay? Sometimes I tell myself I wish sometimes we could have just one big, huge sleepover, right? Everybody come over. We're going to have a big sleepover. We're going to stay up late. We're going to watch a good movie. We're going to eat good. We're going to stay up till like 3 a.m. Who cares? Because we can sleep in the next morning. It'll be terrific. It's love. It's love. Our time is done. We, we have a 
We have a love feast. What did the early Christians call communion? They called it a love feast. The body broken, the blood shed, symbols of love. The death of Christ that poured out himself in agape love. Let's bow together as we prepare to take communion. And if our elders could come forward, please. Our gracious God, we could never thank you enough. Your son bore our sin, died our death, and gave his life. What love. What love. When, when the temptation comes and it wills to doubt your, it will, to doubt your love. Let's to squash it with truth. We're sensible people. We can think these things through. Give us the grace to do that for Jesus' sake. Amen. So I'm going to read a portion of the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and set his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let's bow together as we pray. Our God and Father, yours this morning and every morning and every moment is the glory and the honor alone. At this moment, like this, as we look into our own hearts, for many of us, our faults and our failures and our rebellion, our lack of zeal, all would seem to scream out to us. And they would destroy us if not for your great love given in of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only needed sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus, you are the meeting point for all believers because you are the first and the last. You are the beginning and the end. What a mystery this is that you have set your love upon us and you have united every Christian with your son. And you have brought us together in the communion of the saints to this moment with the great company of people from every age. And what a mystery that is. What a wonder that those who are united to Jesus Christ in every age, in this kind of mysterious way, you, you and them are meeting with us right now. And this is a basis of deep joy. And so we ask, Father, that nothing will be lost in the necessary routine of this moment. As we take these elements, will you renew our minds Renew it of the great sacrifice and the giving of your son on our behalf so that we would be sincerely thankful that we will move to love in order that we might meet with you in a way as we take the elements this morning that is life-changing. So may this love story told in bread, the body of Christ, juice, the, the blood of Jesus, settle us down and sober us up if needed. For in these elements which represent Christ, this is a boundless grace, this is infinite compassion. There's agony there, there's assurance of pardon, there's life, there's glory all mingled together. Therefore, it is in the name of the one who suffered and died for our sins and was raised again, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray.
Amen.